This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. In November 2017, an unusual reddish sky and sun were reported across England. But just what had caused it? The answer surprised many. A combination of smoke from wildfires across Spain and Portugal combined with Saharan dust drawn up from southerly winds from Hurricane Ophelia. The dust caused the shorter wavelength light, that's usually blue, to be scattered, leaving behind the longer wavelength light, that's red and orange. What actually counts as dust and how does it get picked up in the air and atmosphere? In this podcast, we speak to Dr. Rob Byrant, reader in dryland processes in the Department of Geography at the University of Sheffield. We'll learn more about the global dust cycle and how dryland landforms evolve over time and through climatic changes. The global dust cycle plays an important role in the land, atmosphere and ocean system. So can you tell me, how does this work? Most of the uh, dust that we see in the atmosphere comes from dryland regions or, or desert regions where we see um, an imbalance between rainfall and evaporation. So they're basically dry regions. Um, and the fine sediment, one way or another, uh, is emitted into the atmosphere due to the work of the wind on the, on the Earth's surface. And effectively, once the fine particles are in the atmosphere, the atmosphere is a fluid and a very turbulent fluid. Uh, the fine particles can move all over the globe. The key things to note are the source of the material is often from natural sources within dryland regions. Once they're emitted into the atmosphere, then they can fly all over the world. And the way they come out of the atmosphere is either through uh, wet deposition, through rainfall, or dry deposition, which is just settling out from the atmosphere onto the land surface into the oceans. Are there particular processes within that that you're interested in and your research has focused upon? And I guess if I'm looking at processes within this system, then the key processes I've been looking at in my research are to begin to understand where and how material is actually emitted into the atmosphere in the first place. And the reason for that is because what we see is that the interactions between the material and the atmosphere, the interactions between the material, the atmosphere, the land and the oceans is partly driven by the nature of the material that's emitted in the first place. So what, what is actually being ejected into the atmosphere and being called dust? So that's one thing. So in part, I'm interested very much in the, um, the basic initial emission or processes of emission and dust sources in general. However, uh, I'm also interested in part in the transport of material and some of the factors that can, can feed back into the system. During Earth's history, dust has been strongly linked with climatic conditions. And a, a very good example of that is during the glacial and interglacial cycles. Uh, what we tend to find is that glacial cycles tend to be periods when there's quite a lot of dust in the atmosphere and that dust falls out onto the land surface maybe onto ice surfaces and is, 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 is recorded so dust is in fact a very interesting recorder of climate and climate conditions the other side of that is that effectively what we can also see therefore is that there is a climate control on dust emission uh, or at least the availability of sediment and the way it's emitted. So the exact role of dust itself on climate and climate change in the past is also something that's very, very important. Therefore, what we can see if we're going through climate change at the moment and, and potentially a warmer planet, then what we should see, therefore, is some feedback of climate conditions 
on the dust cycle itself. And the net impact of that is that there's a fair amount of uncertainty in some of the processes and interactions that are involved. So where I come into it really is I'm, I'm very much interested in trying to solve some of the problems surrounding the emission of dust and the way in which dust uh, is emitted into the, the atmosphere in the first place, but also uh, from the point of view of actually understanding what the climate controls are on the dust cycle itself. So what, what, what happens when we change climate? What does it actually do to the dust emission process? And how does that affect the kinds of material that are emitted and where that material comes from and where that material goes? So very fundamentally, it's looking at the, the dust impact on climate, but also the climate impact on the dust cycle, because we can see that in the Earth history, that's clearly been something that's uh, been very stark. Do you feel then that a warming world, a warmer world, will result in a dustier world? OK, so let's have a think about how dust impacts on climate. Now, we are going through a warming period at the moment. What we think we know from research is that when there's a, very, when there's a lot of dust in the atmosphere, it interacts primarily with the atmosphere in two ways. So once we have a, a very dusty, murky atmosphere um, at any one point in, in, in time, we tend to find that dust either radiatively uh, scatters energy from the sun, i.e. it will bounce the energy back into space, or it will affect the, um, if you like, the radiative properties of clouds. Okay, so in a sense, um, either directly scattering or absorbing incoming solar radiation can occur when we, when we have dust in the atmosphere. So in a sense, it's a balance because that could either be a warming or a cooling effect. The majority of scientists suggest that, it, that effectively when we have a very dusty atmosphere, that it causes a net cooling of the atmosphere. And an example of that is uh, the, the work certainly done by Natalie Marwald and others, where they've looked at the drought in Africa in, in the period from the 1950s to 1980s. And the drought in Africa led to quite a lot of dust being emitted from that landscape because it was particularly dry. The problem with that is that once you have a lot of uh, dust in the atmosphere, it can also cool the atmosphere slightly, very, very slightly. And what that can do is inhibit rainfall. So in a sense, a cooler atmosphere is less able to uh, actually hold moisture. And, and given that uh, a drought is effectively a dry period, what you can suggest is that when we have a very dusty atmosphere, it can actually feed back on itself and actually intensify uh, droughts, for example. So the, the real problem we've got in a warming climate is actually trying to work out exactly what dust might do. You may say, well, a cooling effect is really cool because it will actually have a, um, a mitigating impact. The problem we've got is that that's not straightforward and we may not actually understand exactly what's going on because when we see dust um, falling out into the oceans and landscapes, uh, we see other impacts that may also kind of balance out this cooling effect. So, for example, dust can uh, fall out onto land uh, and, and where we have dust, dust tends to have um, uh, a net phosphorus or, or nutrient um, uh, content. Therefore, the phosphorus cycle is, is a net nutrient. So we tend to find that dust, where it falls out onto the Amazon, has a, a fertilizing effect. And obviously that affects the carbon balance of that system. So dust from Africa can fertilize the Amazonian system. Dust from Asia, for example, can fertilize areas like Hawaii and, and, the, and the western United States. So we tend to find that that carbon sink and balance is, is not straightforward to mitigate either. Where dust falls out into the ocean, 
uh, dust often has a high iron content, uh, bioavailable iron content, and that can actually stimulate phytoplankton growth, and that can actually form, uh, and they use carbon dioxide, so it can be a sink of carbon. Evidence from now suggests that because of the grain, because the grain size of dust is hard to predict, that in the atmosphere, uh, this kind of balance between does it scatter light or does it absorb uh, is very grain size dependent. And, and, our, uh, and some scientists suggest that the grain size is small and therefore will lead to more scattering. Some suggest it's actually slightly coarser than we think. And actually the radiative impacts may be a net warming one in their own right. So we've got a problem in the sense that uh, the impacts could be significant in, in either uh, increasing warming or reducing warming, but the feedbacks are very complex. And, and that's where the scientific uh, if like discovery is, is, is still taking place. A lot of scientists from across the disciplines are working on this subject simply because the, the, the complexity of it, but also because the impacts are, uh, are currently uncertain. Can you tell me a little bit more about the methods that geographers use to study this very complicated system? The kind of methods we use, because we're geographers, we, we have a wide range of skills available to us and, and a wide range of kind of ways we can approach systems. One of those is to, to undertake field research. So part of what I've done with a team of researchers, to be honest, from across the discipline is work in the source regions themselves. So we've gone to areas where we know dust is emitted and we've used a range of field methods to, un to better understand what the controls on emission are. And that involves um, soil geochemistry, soil texture analysis, um, it also involves long-term meteorological assessment, and in particular, looking at how all those factors link to regional, local climate, uh, large-scale hydrological variability, and so on and so forth. And often we find that dust sources rely on water at some stage in their, in their history. And therefore, the history of water and the, the kind of the use of water in a dryland uh, can also exacerbate and, and control the, the, the system. So people are actually very important. So not just the physical geography, the, the geomorphology of the system is important, but we also find that the human intervention is as well. So we use the whole range of physical geography approaches in the field, uh, but we also have to bear in mind the human roles as well, the anthropogenic or the anthropic impacts as well. Now, on top of that, I can also say that although I'm a geomorphologist, I also use a lot of geospatial data and geospatial methods. So part of the planning for field work Part of the understanding of the processes within dust sources has involved an awful lot of use of remote sensing or earth observation data, an awful lot of use of modelling and modelling approaches to understanding uh, how the dust sources operate, uh, and also long-term monitoring using remote sensing to actually look at uh, significantly about how we can scale up our observations to the scales of which uh, global models work in the first place. Can you tell me a little bit more about where this work has taken place? Where have you studied more particularly? We've been undertaking over the last five years uh, a project in southern Africa where we've been looking at dust emissions from large ephemeral lake systems. At the same time, we've also looked at dust emitted from coastal fluvial sources up and down the coast of Namibia as well. But I think my research has always focused on ephemeral lakes, and ephemeral lakes are lakes that every now and again dry up. So within dryland regions, uh, rainfall tends to be short-term and extremely variable on an annual interannual basis. So lake systems that sit within drylands are normally either very salty because they um, 
evaporate significantly and they con concentrate salts, or they're dry. What we can say, though, in most instances, that ephemeral lakes, if we think back over long-term climate in, in terms of glacial and interglacial cycles, these lakes were almost certainly permanent lake systems uh, in those cycles. So I've been very interested in, in working out why that is and trying to sort out exactly what controls these systems. Because outside the, the Dust Belt of the Sahara, ephemeral lake systems tend to be the predominant sources. If we think about large ephemeral lakes, then Atosha and Makadikadi pans are very important in southern Africa. But systems like Lake Eyre in, in, in Australia are, are big lake systems of a similar nature. They operate in a similar kind of way. And it's not just the, the, the lake systems themselves. The, the, all the sediments and the, 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 the landscapes around the lake systems, including the ephemeral rivers, can also emit dust as well. So the whole system tends to be uh, susceptible to the emission of fine particles. We tend to find ephemeral lakes are also biodiversity hotspots. And that's because water is uh, extremely um, uh, important in dryland systems. And ephemeral lakes, they're not just major sources of dust. There are also areas where, where animals are, are very reliant on the water resources as well. So Itoshapan is a major wildlife preserve, but it's also a, a globally significant dust source. And, and so they're linked, you know, in a sense that you, you, when, it, when the lake is dry and, 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 and uh, it's emitting dust, it's, it, it, it's often very harsh for the animals that live there as well. And the dust itself is, is, is um, as we'll see, it's not good for humans either. So you don't really necessarily want to live down, 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 um, downwind of a dust source. Um, so we also find there are links between uh, dust and uh, mortality of particular species and things like that. As it is when the dust is, is not in the atmosphere, it tends to be wetter, and that can be often a period of success in certain species. So if you like, there is a... Uh, there are all sorts of biophysical, biochemical kind of feedbacks that are operating in these systems. For more information on resources and CPD events to support geographical learning, visit www.rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore IBG schools for the latest updates. This recording was supported by the Global Learning Programme. For more resources to encourage your pupils' understanding of global issues and development, visit www glp.globaldimension.org.uk Thanks for listening.